welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. David has a very special guest in the studio with him today, best-selling author of Feeling Good and Feeling Good Together, Dr. David Burns, who's an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Stanford. David? Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you uh, getting the show going here. Um, I feel honored and I'm excited about having a uh, Dr. David Burns. He's authored a book, Feeling Good, the Feeling Good Handbook, plus several other books. And his work, David knows this very clearly. I've been sort of unabashedly um, loquacious about this, but his book back in the 1990s for me just pulled me out of a horrible, horrible tailspin. And those of, those of you that have read my book know very clearly that this book, Feeling Good, was the thing after 15 years of spiraling out of control that within two years after I started the writing exercises and three calm technique, I came out of the hole. So I'm incredibly indebted to David in his work. He's, um, he'll, I'm going to have him introduce himself, but he's an adjunct professor of psychiatry. He practiced psychiatry at Stanford for many years. He's a, he's a very meticulous researcher. He's published multiple papers. The, his book, Feeling Good, has helped millions of people. I think he said he sold six million copies already of the book. And when I look on the Amazon page, his book still sells well. It's really remarkable. But it is a remarkable book. And I go down to his classes on Tuesdays every time I can just to hear him speak. I just get something out of, his, out of it every time. I could go a long ways time about my experience with him, but I think maybe I should let him talk. So David, welcome to the show. And I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit more. I don't know enough about you yet. Oh, well, thank you so much. I uh, love working with you. I love your, your work, the whole area of pain and its relationship to negative feelings like depression, anxiety, and anger is one that uh, I, I rarely get to talk about, but I have, tremendous interest in it and uh, I've done a lot of research in that area as well but uh, essentially I started out at uh, University of Pennsylvania in the area of biological psychiatry doing research on brain chemistry and prescribing boatloads of medications to patients who were depressed and anxious but I, I really wasn't happy with that phase of my career, I, I was winning awards for my research on brain chemistry, but I could see very well that the idea that depression results from a chemical imbalance in the brain <clears throat> wasn't really true. Our research as early as the 1950s kind of convincingly demonstrated that. Uh, and I was, all the pills I was giving out, I rarely saw people recover and uh, some got a little better, but uh, they weren't going from joy to where they were saying, you know, it, it, it's great to be alive. I, I have so much to look forward to, to today, uh, stuff, stuff like that. And, and then I heard about what was then considered new and kind of quackery almost, cognitive therapy developed by Albert Ellis in New York and uh, Aaron Beck in Philadelphia. The idea that it's actually negative thoughts that cause depression and anxiety. And, right. you know, you tell yourself, I'm no good, I'm a loser, I should be better than I am, I shouldn't have screwed up, blah, blah, blah. You know, when I give my talk, my, my mind will go blank, people will make a fool of myself, people will look down on me. And those thoughts are the cause of your depression. And another amazing thing that Aaron Beck was claiming was that they're distorted, they're not even true, that you're conning yourself. 
And I thought that sounded interesting, but not very believable. Uh, it just seemed silly, too simplistic, that you could train people to think differently. Can I ask you a question? So going way back before you started this CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is what CBT stands for, is that traditional psychiatry basically was talk therapy that if you're interested enough about your past, somehow that would solve it, correct? Yeah, and that's how I was trained. I had psychoanalysts supervising me, and in sessions I would say, tell me more, and nod my head. And they said, you're only allowed to say that twice a session. You know, and then after you've used your two tell me mores, you can motion with your hands for them to talk more, but that's all you're allowed to do. Right. And the patients would come and complain and sob and cry and, and, and nothing, nothing ever seemed to, to, to change. And I, I, I was thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way. It wouldn't be possible, possible to bring about rapid changes with, with people. Why, why should they come and talk for years and years with, with, with no measurable change? It was kind of like the king's beautiful clothing. It, it, uh, it, 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 it seemed absurd to me, and yet everyone, no one, no one seemed to be challenging the, the, the status quo. And to, to this very day, although things are improving in psychotherapy, there's still an awful lot of this endless talk, talk, talk. Right. Well, it's interesting. I like to jump way ahead in the story. Um, two things. Have you just explained to the audience what cognitive behavioral therapy is? I know you've evolved past that, but because um, I know you've mixed in a lot of Eastern philosophy stuff in with what you're doing, but as far as the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, what is that? Second thing is, I do know that the standard, that the psychiatric world says a lot, lot of resistance to it. But I also remember a time I an article about 10 years ago looking at the different types of therapy and psychiatry, and basically they were pointing out that the only therapy that was effective was cognitive behavioral therapy, which I thought, found fascinating. So I'm curious about the data on that. But if you just tell us what cognitive behavioral therapy is, that would be helpful. Well, sure, and I can bring it to life with a personal experience, but the idea is that you're causing your depression and anxiety in the here and now by the way you're thinking about what's happening. And it goes back to the work of the Greek philosopher Epictetus, who 2,000 years ago said humans are disturbed not by events, not by what happens to us, but by our, our thoughts about what's, what's happening. And, uh, and, then, and when you change the way you think, you can change the way you feel. In other words, when you challenge these distorted thoughts and begin to think about things more realistically, in that very instant, you, you can recover. And it's, it's just a radically different approach from- This is 2,000 you know, years ago? Yeah, huh? This is 2,000 years ago? Well, yes, yes, Epictetus. It's not. It's not new. There's a lot of new twists and uh, a lot of new new research. But the idea has been around even before Epictetus. Going going back to to the Buddha was was saying the same thing twenty twenty five hundred years ago. Yeah. But a personal experience is I, I started going to Beck's seminar and getting supervision. And and once he criticized me because of the way I was handling a patient who hadn't been paying his, his fee in the clinic. Now, I didn't care in a way because I, I was just a resident. I'm not being paid anyway, but, but apparently I was too critical or harsh or whatever. And, uh, and so I, I got this criticism and I felt devastated. And on the train home, I, I just I felt worthless and, and 
And I got home and I, I told myself, well, why don't you write down your negative thoughts? This is what we have patients do. So you can pinpoint the distortions like all or nothing thinking and should right. statements and self-blame and overgeneralization. And then I said, no, my problems are real. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work up my brain endorphins by jogging. So I went on this six mile jog. And the farther I went, it became clear what my negative thoughts were and they seemed overwhelmingly valid. And I was telling myself I was a worthless human being. I'm a terrible therapist. I'll probably, they'll revoke my license. I've got no future in psychiatry. And those thoughts seemed absolutely valid. And this is what depression is. You give yourself messages that seem overwhelmingly valid, like you've seen the truth of, about yourself for the first time. And then I finally got home and said, well, why don't you write your thoughts down? And I said, oh, no, I don't need to do that. And then I told myself, but that's what your patients say. They whine and refuse to write down their thoughts. And you tell them they must write down their thoughts. So I said, okay, I'll write down my thoughts. So I wrote them down and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible therapist and they'll take my license away. And then I looked at my list of 10 cognitive distortions and said, are there any distortions in that? And, I thought, well, gosh, that's, it's kind of all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking. If I make one mistake, you know, my career is ruined. Right. And, and then it's a hidden should statement, like right. I should never make mistakes. I shouldn't have to learn and grow. Uh, it's it, it's self-blame. It's an overgeneralization. It's also another word for perfectionism, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, boy, that's that was one of my Achilles heels, although I think I have five heels because I have many shortcomings. Right. But, uh, uh, yeah, and, and then, then I asked myself, well, is that really valid? That, and then I said, well, actually, to think about it, I'm I'm a pretty good therapist. And secondly... I'm a student, I'm learning, but even when I'm old doing an interview when I'm 76 years old with David Hansom, I'll still probably make errors that I'll have, have to learn from. Right. And this doesn't mean I'm a terrible therapist. In fact, maybe I could talk about it with the patient in our session tomorrow and you know, tell him that I screwed up and feel bad about it and have a lot of respect for him. And all of a sudden, my depression vanished like in a flash and it was it was just a, an amazing effect and then i've seen that same effect with i've had now over forty thousand therapy sessions with patients with overwhelming depression or anxiety and i've seen that over and over and now in my group at stanford we've developed even more powerful methods than we had right. back in the 1970s and 80s and I'm frequently seeing complete recovery in just a single session with patients, maybe a two-hour single session. Right. And it, it's just a joy to have these to have these tools. Well, I'd like to make a couple of comments. Um, so with your book, Feeling Good, I first read it in 1991 and pulled me out of a short tailspin. And then I hit a tailspin beyond words that lasted for 10 years. And I re-engaged with you wow. in 2002. And within two weeks after I started the writing, things started to shift. That's after 15 years of chronic pain. Wow. And I was... Oh, you had the pain too? I had physical pain. I had migraine headaches. I had skin rashes, burning wow. feet. And what happens, as you know, you, you thoughts create these chemical reactions, and you can't really escape your thoughts. And you're right. These thoughts create physical changes in your body. What happens when you have sustained exposure to your thoughts, chronic stress, 
and each organ responds in its own way, there's over 30 symptoms of a chronically stressed nervous system. And I had 17 of them at the same time. Wow. And nobody could tell me what was going on. Nobody. And so as I started your book, within two weeks, I shifted about 60, 70%. And about six months later, I ran a buzzsaw called anger, which I didn't realize I had that either. And within six weeks after, between the CBT and also you have a lot of CBT tools about anger, once I processed the anger, and I would immediately say I processed it badly back then, all of my symptoms disappeared. And the reason why there's so many physical symptoms, because of course each cell in the body is bathed in the same chemical environment, but each organ responds in its own way. So there's irritable bowel, spastic bladder, migraine headaches, um, all sorts of stuff. You know, um, I had these horrible brain sensations in my feet. My ears were ringing. It's gone. And I had ringing in my ears for 25 years. Never wow. had away. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm, I'm holding up this book to show you. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, do you know James Pennybaker's work by chance? Have you no, no, I'm not much of a reader, but it looks cool. So it's a very thin book, it's a very quick read, but he, he, I actually put him on, had him on my podcast about three months ago, and I met him in Seattle because his daughter lives in Seattle. But anyway, he started the research paper in 1982 looking at, basically they, they took college students that were volunteers, they had them in four days in a row, write 20 minutes of an intense emotional experience, then they measured their function four months later, there was 15 parameters that improved just with those four sessions better grades, better athletic performance, less anxiety, less depression, et cetera. So the running was very powerful. What's fascinating for me as a physician, there's over a thousand papers now, he actually has 500 in this little book, references. There's over a thousand research papers that document the, the effectiveness of writing. But you know, in medical school, residency, fellowship, private practice, nobody once ever mentioned to me about expressive writing. It obviously makes no money. Not, it doesn't, it is not something you can quote do to people. And so it's a remarkably straightforward tool. And then I, you know, you put it into your three-column technique and also the verbal expression. I mean, you have an exercise in the book that you might, I'll ask you to describe to the group. We stand in front of a mirror and you talk to this person in the mirror with, the, which, with those thoughts in your head. Can you describe that really briefly? Because that was actually a very powerful tool for me personally. Well, in live therapy, we use a lot of role-playing where one plays the negative thoughts and one plays the positive thoughts, and there's a kind of battle that allows you to model how to help patients can crush their negative thoughts, like I'm not good enough or whatever the thoughts are. Right. But you can also do it alone, writing down your negative thoughts and put them in the second person you, like you're talking to someone else, like okay. you're a loser, you're not good enough, you shouldn't have screwed up, what, what, right. whatever you're telling yourself, and then you can stand in front of the mirror and, and say that to, to that person, and then you can respond in a positive, self-loving way using the first person I. I actually, I think I wrote that technique for my book, 10 Days to Self-Esteem. I'm not 100% right. yep. certain. And you're the first person that's ever asked about it. I, I even forgot I put that book in, in that technique in, the, in, in that book. And I'm, I'm glad you found it, found it useful. Well, two things. I mean, it's a very powerful technique. It's a little disconcerting, I got to tell you. It's interesting because just a mirror, right? They're just words. But it's a really, really interesting exercise. The other thing you put in the feeling good handbook, or maybe it's a 10 days of self-esteem, this goes back to the perfectionism should word, you made a comment that the difference between your idea of perfect and your reality is a degree of your unhappiness. Do you remember yeah. that statement? Uh, well, yes, but I, I was probably plagiarizing Karen Horney, who was a, 
psychoanalyst, but a practical one, was born in the 1890s, I believe, and she was really the forerunner of cognitive therapy. And she wrote a book that helped my mother in the 1950s. My mother was depressed and she said, oh boy, I'm reading about the tyranny of, of, of the shoulds. Right. It's so helpful to me. And that, that I never forgot that because I, you know, my, I love my mother and it, it was really great to, to see her pulling out of her, her depression. But Karen Hornei's idea is we have this idealized picture of ourselves. Like I'm David and I'm going to be a great teacher and, and a great therapist and things like that. And, and so you fall in love with this, you know, ideal self. You think somehow you're going to be, and you're going to be so special and so wonderful. And then reality descends. And like I got, you know, severely criticized by a colleague. You were in a different room Tuesday, but in the main room, you know, a colleague became very agitated and, and, and angry with me. And, 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 and so reality presents us with bumps in the road. Right. And then instead of accepting that and, and learning from them, you use your energy beating yourself up, say, oh, I shouldn't have made that mistake. I shouldn't have screwed up. And, and, right. and you, you kind of try to kill your real self Right. thinking that this ideal self will will emerge whereas real joy and enlightenment comes from going in the opposite direction of accepting yourself with love with your warts and all and your, right. your, your failures and using that as an opportunity to learn to grow to, to get closer to to the people that, that that you care about and this idea has been around probably for thousands of years maybe tens of thousands of years self-acceptance right. but it seems like every generation has to try to learn it anew for, for some reason it's very hard for us as human beings to let go of this perfectionism and right. self-critical mm -hmm. tendency that so many of us have but believe it or not that statement that one statement it, you know, it was a really critical time in my own evolution it was a, was a game changer i mean it, it, go wait a second because physicians really are i think a lot of professionals are like this but we're very perfectionistic very self-critical especially it, surgery yeah you want a perfectionistic surgeon. Well, but the problem is when you get folks on perfectionism and it actually teach surgeons mindfulness-based surgery. And as I engage my, by the way, my golf coach is my surgical coach. My complication rate dropped 80%. And it was basically mindfulness-based surgery, just connecting to the move I was doing as opposed to the should thinking. Oh, yeah. yeah remarkable difference. But I'd love to talk about that. So I want to jump. Um, we just got a few minutes left here. But I like to um, discuss emotional versus physical pain. And you had a story you said, because I will say that when I talk to my patients, I say, look, I can get rid of your leg pain with surgery or your arm pain with surgery, or and you have to live with the anxiety you have right now the rest of your life, which is probably going to get worse, or we can drop your anxiety down. You have to live with the pain. Almost everybody wants to get rid of the anxiety. They can sort of deal with the physical pain. Then the neuroscience research now shows that emotional pain and physical pain are some processed in similar areas of the brain with a similar chemical response, but of course it's sustained, which is a problem. But people, I mean, in my experience with chronic pain, it was the anxiety was, which was absolutely intolerable. It was unbelievable. I went from a fearless surgeon being crippled by anxiety beyond words. So I just, I'd like to get your thoughts on physical versus emotional pain. You had a story you thought would be interesting for the audience. Yeah, the uh, I've done a lot of research we could talk about on another occasion that shows that half of his physical pain on average results from emotional upset 
Okay. When you remove emotional upset, you'll typically see a dramatic reduction, sometimes a complete elimination of physical pain. I, I was a pretty rebellious medical student. I probably should never have gone to medical school because I had no interest <laughs> in being a doctor. I wasn't a pre-med student in college or anything. And But a faculty person at Amherst said, oh, you have to go to medical school and become a really? psychiatrist. Okay. And I, I cut classes and I, I was, you know, pretty pretty wild. But one night I was at this local bar. We were sitting drinking a pitcher of beer and a fight broke out. Now I wasn't in, in, in the, involved in the fight, but there was shouting and commotion. And I turned my head to look and I saw a, uh, a mug, a beer mug coming in slow motion, stop action right toward my jaw. Okay. It hit my jaw and exploded and blood came gushing out of my mouth. Jeez. I realized that my jaw was broken. Okay. And so I ran out of the bar, got in my old VW bug and, and drove to the Stanford emergency room, you know, where I was, of course, a medical student and went in and said, you know, my jaw is broken type of thing. <laughs> and and I, it was tremendously painful. And so, you know, they sat me down, they were doing x-rays and various things. And, and I had the perception, you, you said safety is so important, and I was probably intoxicated and kind of hostile, and I felt like I was getting bad treatment, and I was frightened and, and didn't, didn't feel any, any support, and the pain was excruciating. And eventually, uh, a plastic surgeon came to my bedside and said, I, I've been assigned to you, and I've, I, I've looked at your, your x-rays, and you've got a fracture in your jaw, and I'm going to hospitalize you tonight, and we're going to do surgery in the morning, and, and I'm going to wire up, wire up your jaw, and, and you'll be, have, your jaw will be wired shut for about six or eight weeks or something like that. And, 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 I, and I said, am I going to lose my teeth? Because my tooth, teeth felt loose. And, and he says, I, I can't guarantee it, but I don't think so. I, I think they'll be okay, but after we take the wires out of your jaw, you go to an orthopedic uh, dentist and, and they'll, they'll ch check you out and see if anything needs to be done there. And then he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I know you're in a lot of pain and so I've ordered pain shots for you tonight and I want you to have as many as you want. Uh, and I want you to know that everything is going to be fine. Uh, this, this is very routine and it's, it's, it's going to work out just fine. And the moment he said that, my pain totally vanished. Wow. 100%. Wow. And I never requested any pain shots because I, because I didn't need any. But it, it showed that the instant my anger and my anxiety disappeared, the pain completely disappeared. And this is important because this wasn't emotional pain. This was the pain of a severe fracture to a sensitive part of the, of, of the body. Right. And, and yet uh, the, the, uh, the emotions are greatly magnifying Right. Magnifying the pain, and then my subsequent research that we won't go into now, but I, or I had several databases and did statistical modeling to see what is the causal effect of pain, whether it's psychological or medical, makes no difference, on emotions, and what's the reciprocal causative effect of negative emotions on pain? Why, why are pain and anger and anxieties so often go together? 
is the emotion causing the pain or is the pain causing the negative emotion? Right. The short story is I had three huge databases and all of them it came out exactly with the same parameters that uh, negative feelings have a powerful causal effect on all kinds of pain and cause on average 50% of all pain. Wow. And that uh, pain has a negligible causal effect on, on negative emotions. It, wow. And, and so it, it's, it, it's not a cure-all for everyone. For me, it was a cure-all. But on average, if, you, if someone with chronic pain would let, will let you work with them cognitively or whatever to improve or eliminate their negative feelings, and some of them will get a complete elimination of pain, some will get like a 50% elimination of pain, and some will get no elimination of pain. But on an average, there will be a 50% pain reduction. And I think that's an incredibly important discovery. Yeah, I've said this for a while, and I'm trying to understand why the tools that we're using are so effective for chronic pain, because what we're finding out, I mean, medicine views chronic pain as something to be managed, and we're, we're, finding, something, we're finding that it's curable. I mean, it's a solvable yeah. problem. And I think the essence of the solution is connecting to your own capacity to heal, which means you feel safe. And when yeah. you feel safe, you go from adrenaline, cortisol, yeah. sure. oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonins. Yeah. So there's a huge chemical shift in your body when you feel safe. And so we do know that the, rat, the animal studies show that when you are full of stress chemicals, that your nerve conduction doubles. Yeah. And so it's not, so, and then I, we're out of time. I used to say one final thing here. I don't know what your world is like, but in the surgical world, have you heard the word pain generator? Have you heard that word? No. We're looking for the word pain generator. In other words, if we find the source of the pain, we eliminate it. If we get rid of the pain generator, we're going to solve the problem. I spent at least 10 years just obsessed with finding the pain generator. We did injections into the disc, the set joints, we did fusions, all sorts of stuff, and it didn't work. Yeah. It now strikes me that pain is simply a warning signal that says danger. The only pain generator is the brain. Yeah, right. Right, because you're interpreting sensory input, and the brain has to decide whether it's dangerous or not. That's right, yeah. Right? So the only pain, quote, generator is the brain. But I can tell you the surgical world is completely the opposite, that we find this somehow, this little burning fire in your body, and cut it out, we're going to solve your problem. Right? Oh, yeah, I love what you're saying. And, of course, when he touched my shoulder and said, uh, this, this is a routine thing, and we're going to take care of it, there's nothing to, to worry about, I suddenly felt both safe and cared about. Right. And then Absolutely. my negative feelings disappeared, my brain circuits changed, right. and suddenly there was no awareness of, of, of pain. Right. Well, David, thank you very much. Obviously, if you're up for this, I would do, we have about five podcasts who just came up in this conversation. I'd love to really explore in detail some of the, some of the database research that you found out about um, emotional versus physical pain. And again, the neuroscience is very compelling now that they flat out the process in the same, same area of the brain. But anyway, thank you very much. And the next podcast we're going to talk about is basically the role of the family dynamics in chronic pain. And one of the most, again, David's seminar completely changed the way I viewed the whole family dynamics um, a few years ago. In the last couple of years, we found out is, it's a major difference. Anyway, Dave, thank you very much for, the, uh, for your time. And uh, this was great. I don't know if I can give a quick, quick plug at all, but on my website, feelinggood.com, I have tons of free resources for people who are struggling with emotional problems or pain or, or whatever. It's just www.feelinggood.com. There's my own weekly feeling good podcasts and t t tons of things there that can be helpful for you. And in, in addition, if you're, if you are struggling with depression or anxiety, 
my book, Feeling Good, research shows that two-thirds of the people who read it who are depressed recover in, in four weeks, and it only cost, I think, $8 on Amazon. So right. that's another thing that could be a potential resource for, for some of your listeners. Well, it's more than a potential resource. I actually have your book, Feeling Good, in the stage one of my process, because I have people start with expressive writing, just free writing, just get started and get comfortable with the writing. For some reason, a lot of people are really anxious about writing down their thoughts for whatever reason, actually afraid of the thoughts. And I actually was one of those people. But the Feeling Good book organizes your thinking in a way that's very clear. The writing exercises are very powerful. But if you combine the writing with the structure of the three-column technique and other techniques in the book, it's really a remarkable process. And again, for me, 15 solid years of unrelated anxiety, depression, suicidal depression, the whole thing. Within two weeks, things started to shift. And with four weeks, I was just on a roll. It was unbelievable. So and I do remember that statement in your book that, the research shows that two-thirds of people that do just what you call bibliotherapy, using the book, using the writing exercises, actually resolve it. So again, feeling, is feelinggood.com, David? Yeah, www.feelinggood.com. And then the book's Feeling Good. And then really briefly, you know, we can talk for a while, but you, you have the Feeling Good Handbook. You have Feeling Good. You have 10 Days of Self-Esteem. You have Feeling Good Together. Are those, the ba- are those the main books? Do you have any other books besides those? Those are the main ones. I have a new one, Feeling Great, that I'll probably be signing a contract for today or tomorrow, and that has okay. all the new stuff since Feeling Good. Right. Feeling Good was state-of-the-art for 1980, but now we've got all of that plus tremendous new developments in the last few years, really, that make recovery even quicker for, for many people. So that, that should be coming out uh, yeah, next year. I think what's happening with both David and myself is that we're just getting better at this. I'm seeing my patients get better quicker. I'm sure you're seeing yours. Combining the approaches has been really, really excellent. But I mean, between four to 12 weeks, people change. Yeah. pretty darn consistent. And so it's sort of, and there's a whole part of this process that we're seeing people heal quickly. But again, mainstream medicine right now is focused on procedures and doing things. Yeah. They just miss this. Yep. So anyway. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. uh, Thanks. All right. Well, thank you both for a a very insightful uh, interview and discussion. And uh, thank you, uh, David, for sharing your your stories uh, about your own uh, discoveries of this approach to to dealing with pain. I know how many people you've helped over the decades with your with your writings and your insights. And I want to remind our listeners to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And for further information, check out the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.